bull weevils in the cotton patch, can't get them out. And it's all that we have to talk about. We've got good people and their beliefs. What we need for the people is a farm relief. And it looks to me we should all agree. What we need for the people is a farm relief. We can eat sow belly with turnip greens. But we sure do have to plan and scheme. We all start working at the break of day, and we don't get credit, and we don't get... Hello! Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Um, in this episode, I'll be looking at the second half of, of A Death in the Family by James Adgie, um, as we're quickly coming to the end of this series on James Adgie's uh, various uh, writings. Again, all the way back... Uh, quite a few episodes ago with his film writings and some of his film reviews. Um, and now we're coming to the end of it with this posthumously published Pulitzer Prize winning novel, uh, A Death in the Family. I talked in the last episode how I don't really feel this book. I, I kind of can see its value. I can see its interest, but it's not really inspiring me greatly. Um, I think the second half is is more interesting. I think there's more going on in the second half, and and as the story comes to kind of conclusion, it's not really a satisfying conclusion. This is obviously just a segment, an, a moment in the life of a young person, you know, and Adji's own life it's drawn from. So it, that's all it's meant to be. We don't see the future. We don't see what's going to happen to any of these characters. Uh, long term, it's basically just from the day is his father died to the funeral that's what we get right and a lot of the novel especially the second half is from kids point of view i think that's what's maybe more what's kind of interesting about the second half of the novel a little bit more is we do get a a little bit more of rufus's and even catherine his younger sister's perspective on death and how difficult it is for children to grapple with death and to even understand it and to to you know, make sense of, of what that means for them. Catherine, especially Rufus, understands it a little bit better being older, but but Catherine, she just doesn't really get it. She just doesn't you know know what it means for her father to be dead or gone and and all that. But you know, I, I think one contribution of this book, and I talked about this last time, is that Edgy does try to do stream of consciousness of children and particularly very young children. In one section, he even does a baby. Uh, in this section, he does Catherine, who's, you know, a much younger uh, kid, even much younger than Rufus. And again, I haven't seen that before. I, I've seen stream of consciousness of children before, but never quite that young. So um, so that that's an interest of, of this novel. So last time we left off with uh, basically the news coming from from Andrew, who is uh, uh, Mary's brother. I think I got these characters straight. Yeah, Andrew's, uh, or Mary's brother, sorry. Andrew is Mary's brother, and he's the one who went to the site of the wreck, and he comes back and, and reveals that, yes, uh, Jay, Jay Follett, uh, Rufus's father, has died. Uh, oh, by the way, I mentioned last time I didn't like the name, I thought the name Rufus was a bit weird. Rufus actually becomes kind of relevant in the second half of the novel, and in a, in a very little way that's kind of tangential to the main plot story, but it does add an interesting dimension to the story. I'll talk about that in a bit. So anyways, uh, I left off at chapter 10, so let's pick up with chapter 11 and quickly go through what happens in the novel, and I'll give you some of my overall thoughts here. Um, chapter 11 
is, and we get this actually told a couple times to different people, but it's a clinical report on, on Jay's death, right? He had already talked to Mary about the suddenness of the death and how he, you know, died pretty much instantly. Uh, but here he gives kind of the more clinical report. The cause of the accident was mechanical, so he has to explain all the car mechanic stuff. This pin went loose and that uh, wrecked the car. It was like a million to one chance of it happening. It led to the accident and, and Jay would have died instantly. Also, the fact that he had a concussion, the report on like who found the body and how he found out who it was and called. And Andrew's all very clinical about it. He, and, and I think we see here different ways of people coping with grief and loss. Uh, sometimes it is. Some people, people are more comfortable just going at it more clinically, more objectively, with, for some distance. Other people uh, use grief. Mary starts to drink. She's not a drinker. Um, in fact, if there was any tension in this family, there's very little, but it's about drink. It seems that Jake drinks too much. Uh, it's, it's a subtle thing. And whenever you have a car accident, even in this time, you know, it's hard not to think, did alcohol play a role in this this accident right did he have one too many to drink even if someone you know alcoholics are good at hiding their drunkenness and you know will often get into cars and take these risks so it's always a subtext in these car kind of car accidents and it's always in the back of of mary's head throughout the novel is was a drink that led his, to his death but she drinks in this and that, that actually leads to one moment of levity in the story where i think it's a Catherine overhears this and misunderstands or like they say you should be drinking you're drinking too much and Catherine misinterprets that because she doesn't know alcohol from water so she's like why would you want why wouldn't you want mommy to drink more and it, it's it's a it's a it's just a little bit of humor in the, this chapter but um very different responses from anger to withdrawal to to kind of the scholarly distance of Andrew. Um, now, Mary seems to feel that grief is a sin. And so some of her family members and they're all get together. All the adults are together for this chapter, you know, are trying to talk to allow Mary to experience this grief. But but Mary thinks that grief is is sort of unchristian. And one I think one of the interesting themes throughout the second half of the book is this tension between like the institutional religion and the internal uh, religion of Mary. Mary's very, very internally religious. She she thinks about she's praying all the time in her heart. Uh, we get the text of it because internal stream of consciousness, Joycean style stream of consciousness writing. So we get that internal monologue. But she's always very she's very, very deeply religious. But since we got a funeral to deal with, we get the institutional side of the religion as well later on in this second half. Um, so there's some strange stuff that happened in chapter 12, and I think it carries off into 13. Is um, I mean, there's just more of this coming to terms with it, grief, the, the various discussions they have about how he died and all that. But they have like a collective hallucination. And, you know, I... I've heard of these things happening before. Uh, I know, like, uh, you know, it's something that, like, skeptics have to deal with because you do see evidence of, like, collective religious uh, experiences. Um, they do happen. Um, we have one here. Uh, of course, a bunch of people feeling grief, a bunch of people thinking about Jay, thinking about his life, thinking about his death. 
that's the kind of group you would expect or would be likely to have this kind of, of, of fantasy. And the fantasy is essentially is that there's a presence in the, in the room and that it's Jay's ghost. Um, so that and this discussion of the magical event is, is also discussed, I think, a bit in chapter 13. But the main thing going on here uh, under the surface is Mary's growing concern and thinking about Jay's drinking and the degree that his drinking played a role in, in his death. We get, for instance, this line, um, but there he was all that day with Ralph. He must have. Well, he probably did. That was no part of the promise, but not really drunk. Not so he couldn't navigate, drive well. No. Oh, no. No, I won't even dishonor his dear memory by asking. Not even Andrew in secret. No, I won't. And she thought with such exactness and with such love of her husband's face and of his voice and of his hands and of his way of smiling so warmly, even though his eyes almost never lost their sadness, that she succeeded in driving the other thought from her mind. That thought being he was a drunk driver. Um, but it's after this that we get the experience where like, the whole group seems to experience Jay. And then they go into kind of a, a skeptic's conversation, a skeptic versus believer's conversation about about what that is, about faith and all that. So chapter 12 is, is kind of interesting in this meditation on, on, on the truth, the truth of his drinking, the truth of, uh, of this ghost, you know, belief overcoming truth. I think Mary wants to believe he was not drunk, even though he might be. We, we don't actually know, clearly. I mean, they, it doesn't seem they do an autopsy or test him for that. You know, we know he drinks. We know he did spend time with Ralph, who was a drinker. And we have that chapter where we see Ralph going, emptying the bottle, empty, the bottle empty without his, he thought there was more in the bottle, right? So I don't know. We don't get Jay's point of view for a period of time. So, well, we only get it in a couple of chapters and then, then he's gone, right? Um, so the, the, it could be, right? I think Edgy leaves this open, but... The, they believe she wants to believe Mary wants to believe that he's not he wasn't drunk so anyway there's a couple of fascinating chapters here uh, in, in 11 and 12 about grief and about truth and, and how we come to terms with that with this this is the end of part two of the book but we get another italic section um, the first italic section was after chapter eight and that covered maybe it was after chapter seven I think it was after chapter seven and that covered like the very young childhood of Rufus. This one covers more recent past. Jay's, Jay's alive at this time, so it's not the future. It's not, it's not after these events. Um, and it seems it doesn't quite match the themes of the rest of the story. Um, now, in the first part of this, the kids at the school, and we'll meet some like the kids at the school later on too, um, are making fun of Rufus's name. And particularly making fun of his name as being like a black name, like uh, like Rufus being the name, like an African American style name. Now this is set, you know, only some fifty years after the end of the Civil War, right? This is set at the time when Jim Crow was being entrenched in many Southern societies, um, and it's written at the time of the Civil Rights Movement, right? It's written decades after these events take place. So when there's a very different discussion and conversation about race um, going on in America. But at the time, obviously white America, white South, incredibly racist, incredibly institutionalized 
racism, racism exists. But it's not... That's not the point here. The point here is that subtle casual racism that, that exists in white communities. Uh, we, there's no real black characters here. There's maybe one, a minor one somewhere along the way, but really not none. We don't experience race except in this, this very subtle way. Um, now, Angie does talk about race and let us know praise famous men, but it kind of obliquely. He's got a whole story, though, called Death in the Desert, another death in the title book similarly named death in the desert he wrote that much earlier in his career and that's all about race and 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 it's a much more brutal look at casual racism than this but here it's they're making fun of rufus because of his name saying that's basically a black name and they dance around him and 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 sing songs and and just tease him for his name um then he goes back and he talks about this with his parents and we kind of learn that at least mary is is more liberal on racial issues and and she talks about racial equality with him and and basically deals with, and we got bullying here too that's a that's a, a theme i think that's there rufus will later be bullied and when they find out about his father's death um a little bit later too um now the last part of this after we get kind of the race talk from the mother is rufus goes to visit like his great-grandmother really old woman and she's basically an invalid she at one point she pees on the floor um she sort of smiles and this makes rufus happy that she kind of remembers him but it's not clear if she remembers him or you know how old people get even when they don't remember they're just happy to have people around or maybe she was just smiling because of the pleasure of relieving herself uh kind of kind of gross but it's you know it's you got kind of the whole life cycle here, right? In the italic sections. He started with the baby, and now you got a really old person, right? Um, and a similar helplessness. Um, so anyways, you know, th these italic sections I don't think are crucial to the novel, but they do add something to it. I, I think maybe Adji was still trying to figure out exactly what to do with them because they seem to want, he seems to have wanted them there, but where they fit in, I think that was something the editor had to decide later on. All right, so with that, we jump into part three of the final chapters. And that, that covers, I think it's, there's kind of two things going on in the final chapters of this book. One is the kids uh, learning about Jay's death and trying to understand it and some of the ramifications of that. And then the funeral, and then we got some deep kind of issues of religion. Um, so all of it's interesting. Like I said, I think the second half is better than the first half or maybe it makes the whole novel better if you read it the whole thing it, it's not that i it's not a novel i'm going to come back to i think but i appreciate it more after looking at the, at the whole thing um so 14 is from told from rufus's point of view and basically he wants to go down and show his dad his new cap so he bought the cap the previous day right uh in uh when he was with his great aunt uh, and then Mary then has to tell Rufus and then he also brings in Catherine who's much younger about his his death and she uses you know this is the second death talk she's had with these kids in just two days right she, she prepared them for their grandparents her their grandfather's death um, and now suddenly she has to kind of reuse it and repurpose it for her kids but it's a very very obviously different experience to lose one's father than to lose a, a grandfather we kind of expect to lose our grandparents they're often more marginal in our lives 
at least in Western culture, maybe not in all. Um, but what's here is like they don't understand, and partially because she avoids talking about it directly. But even so, even if she does, they don't really know what death is or fully understand it. Uh, and that's a running theme through these chapters here where different people try to explain it to them and especially Catherine doesn't understand at all. Um, so, like, but she says, oh, he's not coming home because God wanted him. They continued to stare at her severely and she went on. Daddy was on his way home last night and he was, he got hurt and so God let him go to sleep and took him straight away with him to heaven. Do you see children? Do you understand? And quote. Now, how do you understand that? I mean, it's she does. She's avoiding the language. It's actually Rufus who says, "Is he dead?" Um, but as we get his internal monologue, we realize he doesn't really fully understand what death means. Better than Catherine, of course, but um, who's kind of a, out there in in her her thinking. We get a little bit of Catherine's point of view in chapter fifteen, which it's just a few pages because then it flips back to Rufus's point of view, but we get her uh, during breakfast that day. Um, now, the point of all this is just how difficult it is for children to understand death and how difficult it is for children to to even uh, to grieve properly if you don't, if they really don't understand what it means, especially very, very young children. Um, so in the chapter 16, then we get kind of the broader context of this. Uh, so Rufus is thinking what his father's death means. Um, oh, wait, there was something I missed here. In chapter 15, uh, Hannah comes and tries to explain death to the children and sort of fails, doesn't do much better than Mary. But we get a really interesting contrast between the religious and the secular point of view about death, where Mary kept saying, you know, God took him, God put him to sleep, God wanted him, he went up to heaven. And then when Hannah kind of goes at it with a little bit more clinical approach of Andrew, saying he had this concussion, he died instantly, he had this car accident. And this is the conversation we get. Concussion, Rufus. Concussion of the brain. That's the doctor's name for what happened. It means it's as if the brain were hit very hard and suddenly and jostled loose. The instant that happened, your father was he instantly killed. She nodded. Then... It was that that put him to sleep? Has? Not God. Catherine looked at him bewildered. You know, I think that's that word bewildered is used several times <laughs> for talking about Catherine's response to all this. But Rufus is saying, well, if he died of a concussion, it wasn't God, right? Now, it doesn't take a PhD in theology to argue your way around this kid's logic here, but he is, it's seemingly growing up not to be religious like his mom and I, I think that might be a suggestion of Adji's own uh, maybe turn or, or, or thoughts about religion he's got a complex view of his religion obviously you know we saw that in let us now praise famous men we see it in the morning watch and you see it in this story as well um, this is actually going to venture into the final I think theme of the book which is religion uh, which is explored in the context of the funeral so then we get chapter 16 uh, where Rufus starts thinking a little bit more about the meaning of his father's death, but he goes to school, but not really. I think he's been given like time off to the funeral, um, but the others already know about his father's death and they can kind of tease him about it. And they tease him about his father's drinking. So it seems 
he's now how does this happen well either the kids know his father's drinking too much but rufus doesn't even fully understand his father as an alcoholic or having a drinking problem so what probably is happening is the parents read jay Follett died they turn to the other spouse say you know he was a drunk it was probably a car wreck because he was out drinking late at night or something like that and then the kids hear this and then they can parrot it back to back to their classmates or maybe they know from some other way but I'm guessing that's what happened because it's actually mentioned it. This was in the newspaper, and that's how the other kids found out about uh, Rufus's father's death. Um, but it's a good chapter. It's an interesting chapter about kind of the society around children and and how this kind of news spread and and how they how how they deal with and talk about the death of a friend's father or a classmate's father. It's not pleasant. I mean, there there's some joshing, there's some teasing joking around and stuff that's that you know it's fairly insensitive but that's, that's what kids do so then we jump to the final chapters of the book the final four chapters which i'll kind of talk about as a block um because they all deal with religion and they deal with the funeral um we kind of turn away from the kids a little bit I mean, even though they're still in the background uh one of these chapters chapter 17 i think is fascinating because it kind of it shows uh, the kid's still struggling with death, but it shows Mary trying to come to terms with her, with his death, and she wants to have this strong faith, and she's preparing for the funeral. She's calling the the, the father Jackson is his name. This is I guess, assuming Episcopal, uh, Episcopalians. That's what Adji was. Uh, so they calls his father Jackson. I, I, I'm saying I don't think they were Catholic, um, but so she's trying to move on. She, at least in her mind, convince herself she's moving on. But she collapses at one point. I think this is after Father Jackson comes in. Um, we get the phone conversation. And, you know, ministers like this, fathers, priests who deal with many funerals, obviously they see funerals differently. Jay was not a Christian. He wasn't baptized, apparently. Um, at least not baptized in the Episcopal Church. And, and so therefore, he's of, this, this priest is of two minds and overseeing this ceremony for Mary. Um, he's a bit aloof, he's a bit distant, and he remains so th uh, in the short time we meet him at the end of the novel. Um, but anyways, uh, the point being is she's trying to put on this proud face, a strong face, but she collapses at one point, her knees buckle. And who, who holds her up? Well, Hannah and the father help her up and help her like leave the room. And I think that's symbolically kind of interesting how she's kind of being propped up by family which we've seen, but also her own religion, right? Religion is something that's been holding her up and giving her something to hold on to through this crisis. But we also have this conflict between the institutionalized and the personal religion, right? The, the, the aloofness of the father, the institutional logic of the church. Uh, and then up to this point, we've only ever seen Mary as a personally religious person, someone who's been uh, full of this internal faith, but now we get to see the institutional face, and it's not as pretty. It's pretty harsh. And, and a lot of what goes on in the end of the novel is a criticism of this harsh, brutal institutional logic of, of, of the church. Um, so let, let's jump to this uh, at the end. Oh, uh, yeah, I kind of want to look at these final chapters as a block. Um, another thing that happens is we meet this guy, Walter Starr. He may have come up before in the story, but he's most prominent at the end. 
where he kind of helps the family, he drives people around, and he also brings the gramophone for the kids. He's essentially a friend of Mary and, and Jay's, and he provides a lot of support uh, to, to the family at the end, and he helps distract the kids. Uh, now, Rufus and I guess Catherine don't go to the funeral. They, they don't. I, uh, I don't know if that's a, was there only so, many, so much space, or is it tradition you don't take young kids to these funerals? Um, I don't know why that is, but I remember not going to a funeral for my great uncle when I was young. I went to the meal afterwards, but not to the, not to the funeral um, itself, not the, the church service. Um, anyways, um, where are we? Um. Oh, yeah. So the final few couple chapters are the funeral and the wake and or the wake and the funeral and kind of the climax of the novel. The final pages of the novel is Andrew. This is, of course, Mary's brother. And he's not particularly religious either. He's more like Jay in his views on religion. But he's really resentful of the fact that Jackson, Father Jackson, doesn't do the whole rite, doesn't do the whole ritual, right, Uh, of the funeral rite for him because Jay wasn't uh, fully baptized in the Episcopal Church. Um, and, you know, if you're an atheist, why do you care? I guess. But he cares, I guess, about the personal front of it all. You get this. Uh, it's, it's a little bit obscure, the meaning, I think. But it, I think it's about religion you know, and about this kind of non-religious perspective and and how you can still kind of have a relationship with religion. Quote, but they saw it too. They saw it too. So he didn't. He wouldn't tell them. There wouldn't be anything to tell. That's it. He told me because I wasn't there and he wanted to tell somebody and thought I would want to know and I do. But not if he hates them. And he does. He hates them just like opening a furnace door, but he doesn't want them to know it. He doesn't want them to know it because he doesn't want to hurt their feelings. He doesn't want them to know it because he knows they love him and think he loves them. He doesn't want them to know it because he loves them. But how can he love them if he hates them so? How can he hate them if he loves them? Is he mad at them because they can say their prayers and he doesn't? He could if he wanted to. Why doesn't he? Because he hates prayers and them for saying them. End quote. Right. I guess there's like the, the public face and the, and the personal face. Right. And those of us who kind of turn away from the religion sometimes have a hard time with that public pretending of it all. Um, but the really resentment, res- resentment over the institutionalized size of the church, I think, comes strongly at the end of this book. Um, now, where Andrew kind of ends up thinking the funeral was nice was like a f- butterfly lands near the coffin or the headstone or something that kind of uh, symbolically is more meaningful to Andrew than the whole service and the whole ceremony. All right. Uh, Yeah, I think that gets through most of the main points. I do think the second half of the book improves on the first half and makes the whole thing more interesting. It's a hard book to get into, though, and I don't necessarily recommend it. It's not a page turner. It's something I kind of wrestled with and wrestled with in kind of a in a frustrating way, not a fun way, like with some writers. Like I said, Joyce, I said the last episode, I think wrestling with Joyce was always fun for me. Wrestling with this hasn't been nearly as, as fun. But yeah, I think it's a good exercise, and I'm, I'm glad I, I 
broke down and finally read this book. So um, the next episode, we will finish up our look at Adji by looking at uh, The Morning Watch. Uh, then uh, three stories, one called Death in the Desert, which was written way back in 1930. The Day That So and Sorrow Shall Reap, uh, 1931, and A Mother's Tale. I think A Mother's Tale is also published kind of late, 52 in Harper's. So just these th four pieces of short fiction, and that will... I think that's pretty much everything Angie wrote uh, of significance. You know, other movie reviews, book reviews, things like that. But, you know, as far as his more lengthy works, that's going to be it. So he died young uh, and, and he took a long time to write stuff. So uh, we, we, we got what we got from this writer, though. And it's, it, just is, it is what it is. So I guess that's it. Uh, let me know what you think of Death in the Family. Give me your comments, and I will uh, read them and think about them and, and maybe respond to them. Send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com, um, and I will we'll see you next time. Look to me, Thanks. We can all agree what we need for the people is the farm relief. Too high in the market, too low. We ask for credit and they all say no. We got good people and they all know well what the poor old...